Politics, powered by Gannett. Hello, I'm Sarasota Herald Tribune political editor Zach Anderson, and I'm joined from Tallahassee by Gannett State Capitol reporter John Kennedy. Hey, John. Hello, Zach. And joining me from Pembroke Pines is Palm Beach Post politics editor Antonio Fins. Good morning, Antonio. Good morning, gentlemen. Well, as Florida continues to experience alarming levels of new coronavirus cases, Governor Ron DeSantis is offering no plan to promote vaccination among the general public. We'll discuss the governor's approach to vaccines, the criticism he's getting after law enforcement raided the home of a former state worker who said she was fired for refusing to manipulate coronavirus data. We'll also discuss plans being floated in Trump world for the president to hold a rally in Florida during Joe Biden's inauguration and the Florida Attorney General's decision to join a lawsuit seeking to have the U.S. Supreme Court consider tossing out the election results in key swing states. But first... Pick in time, gentlemen. Do you uh, have some numbers for us today? How about you, John? Zach, I, I've been going low with lately with my number choice, but this week I'm uh, I'm back reaching for the stars. Well, or at least a little higher. I've got a 490, 490. 490. All right. How about you, Antonio? I'm going to go with 51. 51, and I can get below both of you with a two. So that's 490 for John, 51 for Antonio, and two for me. Remember those numbers, folks. We'll tell you what they mean in Florida politics at the end of the show. Well, a coronavirus vaccine is on the cusp of being available, offering a light at the end of a long, dark tunnel. Florida should start getting doses of the vaccine this month. And Governor Ron DeSantis says nursing home residents and frontline healthcare workers will get the vaccine first. He said this week that every nursing home resident could be vaccinated by the end of the month. But when it comes to promoting the vaccine among the general public, Florida is not following other states with detailed plans. Ohio has a 52-page document outlining vaccine promotion and distribution efforts that includes reminders for people so that they get the second dose. Maryland's plan enlists celebrities and church leaders to promote the vaccine. Florida's a different story. John, you've been looking into what DeSantis is planning when it comes to vaccine outreach. What did you find? Well, uh, Florida's Department of Health does have a plan, a 50-page document outlining a lot of the effort aimed uh, first at nursing home residents and staff, uh, healthcare workers and older Floridians, uh, those with underlying illnesses. But, but you know, really missing is any kind of mass outreach, uh, any kind of public service messaging to the general public, uh, you know, urging them to get immunized. Uh, You know, every year Florida goes big with messaging before the start of hurricane season or urging people to get prepared, uh, plan an escape route and stock up on supplies. Uh, So, you know, the state can do this type of thing, but the state's plan seems largely focused on coordinating communication between uh, state agencies and what they call uh, partners like the uh, Florida Hospital Association and the Florida Medical Association. There's there's really nothing singularly directed at telling people, you know, we need you to get the shot. Uh, instead, DeSantis in a, in a video message about the vaccine and the state's uh, preparedness made a, made a point of saying that his quote was, no one will be mandated to take the vaccine. You know, okay, so just like with his messaging about wearing a mask, he's effectively saying, well, you know, vaccines are important, but no one is going to order you to take it. So don't worry. But um, public health experts that I spoke with uh, said that this is just the wrong approach. They say that clear messaging is very important. Uh, You you know, after all, they're they're, they're shooting for getting 70 percent of the population immunized. 
uh, the, the, that's the level needed to create what's considered herd immunity. John, let's be clear. 70 percent is a is a high level, especially when you have about half of the population in polls, you know, being skeptical of the vaccine. There's really no way you're going to get to that level unless you're really out there pushing it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, th th that's the thing. I think you have to have people that when you consider, you know, there's a, an, an enormous uh, amount of uh, questions about the vaccine, uh, especially among the minority population. Getting access to the vaccine is a question as well. And then, of course, you know, there's a large anti-vaxxer movement that is uh, very influential in Florida and nationwide. So, you know, just having a vaccine but not getting people to line up for it, that would be a, a, a tragedy, experts say. But the Governor seems to be opting more for a, a hands-off approach. He apparently wants to, you know, get the vaccine to the most uh, vulnerable populations. But DeSantis, obviously a conservative Republican, doesn't want to appear as if he is part of a government muscling people to get it. Uh, though you got to think that certainly a friendly nudge would be not seen as heavy-handed and wouldn't antagonize his and, uh, you know, President Trump's voting base. And maybe if you had testimony in TV spots from people who have gotten the vaccine and say it's not so bad and very worthwhile, maybe that would help get Floridians off the couch and to their doctor's office or a public health clinic for the vaccine. But so far, there's no public service announcement campaign planned. And it just makes me think we are moving from where wearing a mask was so politicized by this governor and the president to where uh, getting the vaccine now may be a similar test of uh, loyalty to some kind of ideology. Antonio, what are your thoughts? I mean, uh, you know, the governor has really said, I'm not going to do a lockdown. I'm not going to do a mask mandate. And, and he's really seemed to uh, focus on the horizon here and the arrival of the vaccine as sort of the the silver bullet here that'll get things back to normal. But if you're not promoting it, I mean, people are going to wonder, well, if if uh, half the population or, or more or, or even just a significant chunk of 30, 40 percent isn't vaccinated, people are still going to be um, wondering if 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 it's uh, if if the if it's safe to and, and it'll be it'll raise questions about whether, you know, the, the economy can fully reopen? Why do you think the governor um, isn't fully embracing sort of getting the, everyone in the public to get vaccinated? Well, Zach, you know, that's a great question. And we would ask the governor exactly that question, except he's not as accessible as he used to be. If you remember prior to the November 3rd election, the governor held daily briefings on weekdays and then answered questions after that. And that's not been the case since the election. Now, in fairness to the governor, he has said that he is focused on the vaccine distribution system, like, like John noted. And in fact, he tweeted this week that he was at the White House Vaccine Summit. And I think we can all agree that vaccine distribution will be the most important story of the first half of 2021, if, if not all of next year. So that much is legitimate. And, I, you know, and, and the distribution of this vaccine is kind of a complicated matter. So I think we do need to take into effect that that's, gonna, that's probably requiring a lot of time. But it does beg the question that you guys have been talking about, why there isn't at least give plans for equal weight given to public service announcements. Now, John mentioned that he's spoke, spoken to public health officials. Well, I spoke to people in the business community, some of my sources, and asked them, well, what do you think? And they're all shr you know, shrugging their shoulders and scratching their heads and, and showing a little bit of frustration. I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, 
Nobody wants this pandemic over more than healthcare workers, but business people who have suffered a lot economically and financially and a lot of hardship also want this pandemic over. And the vaccine right now looks to be like the fastest way to return to any kind of normalcy. In addition, uh, you know, a couple of my business sources, you know, noted that that there are polls that show many Americans, especially racial and ethnic minorities, are leery of getting immunized. And by the way, blacks and Hispanics have been among the demographic segments that have been worst affected by COVID-19. And my sources pointed out that those are two very important population segments in the state of Florida. Um, you know, John mentioned that the governor is opposes efforts to mandate people to receive the vaccine, much as he'd been, been opposed to obligating Floridians to wear face coverings. And, you know, that's consistent with this super hypersensitive, you know, Sons of Liberty, don't tread on me view that wearing a mask is the first step to socialist brainwashing. So you think that there's just a, a resistance that, you know, people think that uh, they don't want Big Brother sticking a, a needle in their arm? I mean, you could, you could argue the same thing about like the measles vaccine and all these other vaccines that kids have to get before they can go to public schools, right? Yeah, and you can argue that about, remember the whole debate 30 years ago about wearing a seatbelt in a car and even texting in the car. But the peculiar aspect of this, however, is that on face coverings, DeSantis was right in line with his political godfather, Donald Trump. But on the, on the vaccine, he is not. In fact, the president is doing all he can to make his name synonymous with the coronavirus vaccine. I mean, I wouldn't even be surprised if, the, if his signature appears on the vaccine vials themselves, akin to how it appeared on those stimulus checks earlier this year. Trump obviously sees his legacy value in the vaccine an achievement he wants to claim for his presidential legacy. So you, you would think that DeSantis would be out there bully pulpiting this the vaccine to inoculate Floridians and the pandemic and give Trump the ability to claim this victory. You know, but he's not, as, as, as John has pointed out. And, and it's peculiar to say the least that he is not. We'll have to wait until the governor comes out again for a chance to ask him and the president for an answer. Now, I, we should let our listeners know that at least one Republican state lawmaker, Mike Caruso, here in Palm Beach County, has joined the call for a statewide mask mandate. He cites a sharp increase in cases in his district. What Caruso wants is for the government to relent on his opposition to face, to, uh, on his opposition to these face coverings and to issue the mandate. It's just one GOP lawmaker, and the governor is really dug in, as is the majority of the GOP leg leg legislature. So don't look for a change in DeSantis' position on any of this. You know, but when it comes to COVID, you know, Floridians are basically we're still kind of on our own when it comes to self-protection and maybe when it comes to deciding on whether to get vaccinated or not. Well, we'll see where this goes. I guess the distribution is the first part of it. Um, and uh, it's not going to be broadly available to the public for a while. But at some point, it does seem like um, there's going to be a, a big group of people who, unless you, you make a concerted effort to reach out to them, are not going to get vaccinated. And how does that affect the state's ability to kind of to normal we'll have to see like if i just say one thing what something one of my business sources mentioned that you know that's not a bad thing it, it allows this this phased in process allows a lot of the kinks and the distribution to get worked out before you get to the mass population but others said yeah but you know this is the moment where you want to start educating the public um and don't lose this opportunity at the very least, it seems like, uh, you know, trying to uh, assure people that this is safe, which the studies seem to indicate that that it is, uh, you know, there's been some allergic reactions to, I guess, the vaccine and 
in England, but those were among people who already, um, you know, had EpiPens and were having allergic reactions to other things. So, uh, but uh, yeah, well, we'll see uh, how the governor approaches this. DeSantis was also at the center of another big coronavirus-related story this week when law enforcement raided the home of Rebecca Jones, a former data scientist with the State Department of Health, who said she was fired after refusing to manipulate coronavirus data. Jones created the state's COVID-19 dashboard, and after she was fired, she created her own dashboard to put out coronavirus data. State law enforcement officers raided her home on Monday and confiscated computer equipment after getting a complaint from the Department of Health about unauthorized access to a state emergency communication system. Somebody sent out a message to state workers through this emergency communication uh, system urging them to come forward with inside information on the state's virus response. Jones has denied sending the message and said DeSantis uh, is trying to intimidate her and other state workers. The governor's spokesman said that he didn't know anything about the raid. Jones did an interview with CNN. The actor Edward Norton even tweeted about it. Uh, DeSantis is getting a lot of heat. And uh, a Republican appointee of the governor even resigned from a state commission in protest of the raid. How big of a problem is this for the governor? Well, I think it is a problem for him going forward as a leader. Uh, what was shown on Jones's own home security cam video of this raid is uh, is alarming and I, I think very alienating to most Floridians. Uh, it seems like DeSantis is on the verge of going totally Trump, uh, alienating so much of the electorate that he's on a political island, really populated only by his base voters who also were Trump's base voters. It, it doesn't seem like whatever the crime Rebecca Jones was accused of doing required this kind of hardball police tactic. Uh, reporting suggests that at, at worst, uh, Jones as a former Department of Health employee used a, uh, a poorly secured state online account to send a message to her former coworkers, urging them to come forward and uh, support her criticism of quality of the uh, agency's reporting on the coronavirus. Now she denies doing that, but uh, that uh, you know her IP computer IP address uh, is uh, linked to uh, the access to this uh, online account. And uh, that that kind of raises uh, some questions about her involvement, but she, as I say, is is denying any any involvement. But but thanks to that home video camera that she home security camera that she had set up in, at her house, the the arrival of the Florida Department of Law Enforcement agencies looks like something out of a Netflix drama. Uh, now, 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 you know, maybe DeSantis has nothing to do with this, but it's his administration's work and uh, it can easily be interpreted as him trying to send a message to anyone that doesn't agree with him that you face severe personal risk if you question his authority and are willing to defy him on his handling of the coronavirus. Uh, th th that's pretty scary. And uh, not just to those who work for him, uh, but I, I, I think to the Florida public at large. Uh, now, DeSantis may have reached a, a decision point with the uh, November 3rd election. He, he could have either accepted that Trump had lost and it was time to move on, maybe move back toward the political middle 
to uh, preserve his own viability heading toward a 2022 re-election campaign and, uh, you know, maybe hold out hopes that leading a mega state like Florida successfully will be rewarded with him being seen as a viable Republican uh, presidential candidate in 2024. But uh, instead, DeSantis seems to be fully following Trump, challenging the results of the November election and ducking the media and public appearances, even as the coronavirus climbs again in Florida. To, uh, to avoid interacting with a questioning media, he's been uh, kind of relegated to someone putting out video messages on Twitter. And now this, uh, a, a viral video of his administration cracking down on a dissident who has uh, dared to defy him. It's it's really not a good look for the governor. Uh, and like Trump, uh, DeSantis is uh, starting uh, to see some Republicans uh, in his orbit defect. Uh, he had uh, there was a, 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 a DeSantis appointee, Philip Kowski, who uh, is you know obscure part of an obscure commission, the nominating commission here um, in Southwest Florida that uh, nominates judges uh, to replace um, vacancies on the bench. Um, but, you know, he's a lifelong Republican who who was reappointed to this position uh, by DeSantis, uh, you know, has been involved in Republican politics in this area. I talked to him. He, he basically said, you know, I kind of liked DeSantis. I had nothing wrong with him, although he is a bit of a, a never Trumper and, and has broken from the party a little bit on that. But he said, you know, I like the governor, um, but he's become increasingly alarmed by his uh, coronavirus uh, response. And he really thought that this raid on Rebecca Jones was, quote, uh, Gestapo tactics and that even if she did what she was accused of, that he, he kind of viewed her as a hero for trying to get people to come forward uh, and tell the truth. And so he resigned from his um, uh, JNC uh, position, and, and that got a, a quite a bit of attention as well. He went on CNN to uh, Chris Cuomo's show to talk about his resignation. Uh, what, what do you make of that? I mean, I, you don't see a, a lot of Republicans criticizing DeSantis. Uh, you think that he could get some more uh, criticism going forward? I, I don't really get the sense that you know, a lot of elected officials are, are really interested in coming out and, and uh, saying that he hasn't done a good job on the coronavirus. DeSantis has a hold on Republicans in Florida, sort of the way Trump has a hold on Republicans nationwide, it would seem, where they are very reluctant to come out and, uh, you know, challenge him on anything. But it is possible that maybe as the legislature begins uh, engaging a bit when they start coming back for committee meetings in the month of January uh, prior to the March regular session of the legislature, that maybe you start seeing those Republican leaders who, whose own you know careers are somewhat on the line with how the state handles uh, the virus and also handles the vaccines and handles, uh, you know, d d those who are willing to challenge any of uh, the governor's uh, pronouncements on coronavirus, how, how those legislators uh, it, it take the governor on it, it, or not. It, it's still very possible that this legislature, which has been totally disengaged for the last nine months of this pandemic, uh, that they stay that way, that they just are completely uh, handing it over to uh, the governor as far as making decisions. Or do they want to actually step forward and uh, make some changes themselves to how the state should be handling it?
at, at this point, though, too, it's it's really hard to believe how DeSantis ever gets back to the persona he had as a newly elected governor when uh, he was considered a you know kind of a popular rising star that was uh, gaining support from Democrats and independents in uh, you know what's the nation's biggest toss-up state. Uh, instead, it really looks like he's currying favor with the uh, the no surrender Trump base only and uh, proud of showing off his willingness to use uh, in, in the Rebecca Jones case to, to to use brass knuckle tactics to get what he wants. Yeah, it does. It does seem like he's really um, kind of hunkered down here and, and is really playing to his base at this point. I think before the coronavirus, a lot of Democrats and independents didn't know a whole lot about him and what they heard about, uh, you know, his promotion of environmental initiatives and um, you know, medical marijuana and allowing smokable marijuana, they, they kind of had a vague, um, you know, notion that maybe he was doing some things that they liked. But now uh, a lot of people know who DeSantis is. He's been on national television a lot during the pandemic. And uh, it seems like the uh, opposition to him has really hardened. And, uh, you know, he is definitely seems to be playing more to his his base Um at this point, and maybe that's enough to win re-election in 2022. I mean, Trump won the state by triple the margin that he did in 2016, um, largely playing to his base. So who knows? Uh, maybe the governor saw that and says, um, you know, I, I need to I don't I don't necessarily uh, need to broaden my appeal as much. Well, this week, Axios and other media outlets reported that instead of attending Joe Biden's inauguration, President Donald Trump may travel to Florida for a rally on the same day. This would be a shocking departure from the nation's tradition of the outgoing president participating in the peaceful transfer of power. If it happens, it also would officially represent the shift in Trump's uh, center of gravity from Washington, D.C. to to Florida, where the president is expected to make Mar-a-Lago his post-presidency base of operations. With Trump refusing to concede, he basically would use the rally to kick off a sort of MAGA world parallel presidency in exile in Palm Beach County. Antonio, you and the staff at the Palm Beach Post have been preparing to cover Trump's post-presidency, but I'm not sure anybody can prepare for something this unprecedented. What's your take on the potential for this rally and what it would signal going forward? Well, you know, the latest speculation is that the president will come uh, down for the holidays as he does, you know, every year, uh, arriving before Christmas. Um, then he usually leaves right after New Year's and returns to D.C. Or, 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 um, but we hear that this year he may not even go back to D.C. He may just stay here. Now, this this rally idea here somewhere in Florida is almost predictable. I mean, it's predictable that President Trump would try everything he can to draw attention from, you know, the president-elect Joe Biden and, and, and Biden's inaugural moment. So the split screen distraction of the outgoing president competing for a broadcast audience with the incoming president would only be surprising if it didn't happen. And certainly Florida Republicans are all for it. I mean, uh, Joe Gooders told you, Zach, that, you know, that he would welcome it. And, and even if Florida Republicans didn't think it would be a good idea, they're not going to admit it publicly. And they certainly wouldn't spurn the invite to another Trump political WrestleMania rally to cheer and chant, lock him up or lock her up or fight for Trump or whatever new chant uh, the president has by then. Now, the rally would also kick off more than uh, perhaps a comeback campaign. It will definitely kick off what will be the most unusual post-presidency ever. Uh, and, and it's going to be unprecedented, or better said, as Lynn University presidential historian Robert Watson told me this week, unconventional. Watson said everything about the uh, Trump presidency has been unconventional to the point where he's actually joking with friends 
that they were gonna, they're going to have to rewrite all the textbooks because Trump has violated everything they have said, what every textbook has said, was a truism of the presidency. Watson also pointed out that many in the ex-president's club have devoted themselves to public service. You know, Jimmy Carter, for example, built Habitat for Humanity Homes, and even the Carter Center has monitored foreign elections. Watson said he has always marveled at how ex-presidents have the discipline to stay quiet and refrain from intervening in their successor's policies to allow them to govern. Uh, but Trump said, but Trump, Watson said, is likely to pursue endeavors that keep him relevant in the political conversation debate, such as perhaps a TV network, which we, of course, have talked about in, in past podcasts. Whatever Trump does, Watson said, he fears it won't be positive in the sense of letting the country heal and promoting a peaceful and gracious transfer of power that allows his successor, President Joe Biden in this case, to move forward. And that's another unconventionality about Trump. You know, this post-election legal fight, uh, which is going to which is on schedule now on pace to last longer than Al Gore's challenge in 2000. Gore contested the election for 36 days. Trump and his allies are set to surpass that number and by a long shot if they carry this on to inauguration day, as they have said. Uh, if so, Trump's legacy would include both the longest ever government shutdown and the longest ever election challenge. However, we do need to point out that at least Gore did win some legal victories that bolstered his argument until he got to the U.S. Supreme Court. President Trump's lawyers, led by Rudy Giuliani and Jenna Ellis, both who have come down with COVID-19, by the way, have failed miserably in getting the courts to agree to any part of their dystopian view of the 2020 election. And no court has sided with Giuliani and Ellis or the array of other legal actors who have also filed challenges. And the U.S. Supreme Court, which ruled five to four against Gore back in 2000, wouldn't even hear a challenge to this year to a, a Pennsylvania vote certification lawsuit filed by a Republican in that state. And more often than not, Team Trump has gotten scolded by judges for making blustery claims that weren't backed up with actual facts or evidence. Now, Trump supporters, and, and this is what they have told me, and that's what, what they've reached out to us to tell us, they point out that Giuliani has presented lots of evidence and witnesses at these quote-unquote hearings. But, you know, it's one thing to make allegations before conservative network TV cameras. It's another to make another thing to make allegations in a courtroom where you risk a felony perjury charge that will cost you money, your voting rights, and maybe even jail time. And allegations aren't aren't evidence. I mean, the, there it's highly disputed whether he's presented a lot of actual evidence. <clears throat> exactly. I mean, he's presented a lot of people who have not shown up in court under oath to make those even to make those allegations. Now. As a business writer, former business writer, you know, I often heard business people lament the scourge of frivolous lawsuits. You know, and the GOP was a party of tort reform to defuse abuse of the legal system. But right now, look up the term frivolous lawsuit in any legal textbook, and, and there will be a picture of the Trump, of Team Trump's lawyers. Um, and I bring this up because our own Governor DeSantis, who helped launch what has now been a, a month of long, you know, of these embarrassing courtroom, you know, dramas, um, you know, he was... You know, even as the votes were being counted the first time around, DeSantis was out there egging the president on to lodge these legal challenges. Yeah, he said, what, what, did, what did he say? He said he said he should, should exhaust all options, basically. Exhaust all options. Go to you know, the bitter end here. And sure enough, that is what Trump is doing. And But now, you know, DeSantis has actually been kind of quiet about the president's losing streak in the courts, including what was an apparent 9 to, 0, 9 to 0 shutout at the Supreme Court uh, this past week. Um, you know, so while DeSantis is quiet, though, you know, Florida Attorney General Ashley Moody did file a legal brief in support of that lawsuit by her Texas counterpart, which begs the question, you know, why was it the Texas Attorney General and not Moody that filed the original challenge? 
And why are Florida Republicans merely me twos in this effort? Why aren't they the main players? And for that matter, you know, Florida has plenty of landscaping businesses. Why can't one of them host one of these Rudy Giuliani press conferences? Uh, then again, <laughs> maybe Florida's had enough of these election-related humiliation, and maybe it is time to take a backseat. I don't know. Let's see what you guys got to say. <laughs> John, what do you think of Ashley Moody weighing in on this Texas lawsuit, which uh, is seeking to uh, get the U.S. Supreme Court basically to the, to throw out the um, – uh, the results in a number of swing states. Uh, Moody's getting a lot of criticism and not just from Democrats who are saying this is a colossal waste of uh, taxpayer money. Uh, governor Jeb Bush, former Florida governor, uh, Republican, weighed in. Um, uh, he was uh, chiming in on a tweet from Texas's own uh, Republican Senator John Cornyn, who said that, you know, he didn't understand the legal merits behind this lawsuit. And Jeb Bush chimed in to agree and said that, that there was no legal argument to make here or, or no legal theory uh, that justified this lawsuit. Uh, but Ashley Moody seems to uh, feel compelled to uh, support it. So what, what do you think? Yeah, well, it seems, you know, just like DeSantis, it seems like Moody now has jumped the shark when it comes to uh, to Trump support. Uh, remember, Moody campaigned for attorney general in 2018, saying that partisanship would have nothing to do with the way that she runs the state's top legal office. But she has clearly thrown that promise out the window, along with a, a lot of taxpayer dollars spent putting together this uh, amicus brief, along with uh, 16 other Republican attorneys general that you know are lo looking to help support Texas's bid to subvert the results of the November election. Uh, the, the whole lawsuit is built on the dubious claim that the elections were fraudulent in Georgia, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. Uh, you know, when you when you parse into that, think about what Moody has done. She is signing Florida on to the claim that 80,000 forged signatures are on ballots in Georgia. Really? You know, th th there's no proof of that. Uh, two recounts in Georgia have found no evidence of that, but there's yeah, there you have Florida's top legal officer saying that this is what she, as a representative of Florida voters and taxpayers, support. Um, it, it would seem to be a pack of lies. Uh, it, it, hard to believe how you're going to be able to find credibility in anything that comes out of that attorney general's office again. Uh, it, no legal effort. No, no legal experts are saying that the Texas suit has any chance with justices. But again, this is clearly all about you know, loyal politics for Moody, who, uh, you know, she has also brought Florida onto the uh, what, what now seems to be a doomed lawsuit to uh, overturn the Affordable Care Act. Um, and she also, uh, earlier this election season, asked the Florida Department of Law Enforcement to investigate Michael Bloomberg's contribution to pay the fines and fees of uh, felons that are prohibited from getting their voting rights uh, because of a Florida law. So, um, you know, it just seems that this Texas lawsuit shows that Florida's top legal officer is willing to sacrifice the integrity of an election if she can keep her political mentor, you know, in power. And, John, it's not necessarily unusual for attorney generals to um, to weigh in on these lawsuits that are often seen as very partisan. Pam Bondi did it with uh, lawsuits regarding the Affordable Care Act and other things that came out of the Obama administration. And you see Democrats do it as well, um, you know, with, with issues that are um, maybe priorities for, for the Democratic Party. But this seems different. I mean, this is really seeking to overturn a, uh, a free and fair election, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, th- th- this is not about policy. This is all about uh, politics and personality. Well, um, w- it's a, a pretty remarkable moment that uh, we're at right now. We'll see what happens when the Electoral College uh, meets next week and, uh, you know, whether, um, you know, things start to, to change here and move on to the next administration. We will move on to uh, some numbers here. Uh, Antonio, you had uh, 51. You want to talk about that? Yeah, yeah. My number actually this week was actually proposed by a couple listeners. So this may be the first listener-inspired number in the uh, Florida Inside Florida Politics podcast. Yeah, 51 refers to the, the 51st state. So let's go back to that November 3rd election. Uh, here in Florida, we voted for president, uh, plus congressional seats and and constitutional amendments, you know, for open primaries and the $15 wage, minimum wage amendment. But in Puerto Rico, in Puerto Rico, they were actually voting also on whether the island should become the 51st state. For background, Puerto Rico is not an independent country. It is a U.S. territory and its residents are American citizens by birthright. But it's not a state. And over the years, the island has held various votes on its status. But none, none of the results were truly conclusive or, or determinative. Last month, however, uh, Puerto Ricans voted in favor of statehood by 52% to 47%. Now, the vote isn't binding. It's, it basically is a, 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 a sort of a, an expression of where the island is. And ultimately, it's up to Congress to make it happen or not. And there lies the reason why these listeners reached out to us. Um, and it's also where Florida politics factors in. Actually, to be specific, where Florida's congressional delegation, including all-important Republican U.S. Senators Marco Rubio and Rick Scott, come in. Both have supported statehood for the island. But after the vote in Puerto Rico on November 3rd, they've not been super vocal. Specifically, what our listeners said is that there has been little said about what's next, especially since it takes 60 votes in the U.S. Senate to admit a state. One of our listeners said Puerto Ricans want to know where they stand. Uh, For example... You know, for an action as important as statehood, should a vote be a simple majority, like 51 or 52 to 47 percent? Or should it require a supermajority, like 60 percent of of approval or or even two thirds? That's one question that they raise. We should also mention that the politics of statehood in the United States are way complicated, too, especially in the U.S. Senate. The last two stars added to the Star Spangled Banner, Alaska and Hawaii, offered up two GOP senators and two Democratic senators. So there was balance. If Puerto Rico were admitted along with, say, the District of Columbia, the Senate's partisan balance would be upset. The District of Columbia would almost certainly offer up two Democratic senators. But what about Puerto Rico? It has leaned Democratic, but it's also been a place where Republicans have made inroads. But it's so it's much more of a wild card. And in a Senate where Republicans right now only hold a two-vote lead, that's really important math. Now, you may say, OK, yeah, but, you know, what are the chances an election in just one state could decide who controls the U.S. Senate? Well, you might want to Google Georgia runoffs in January 5th for that answer. The point being that what our, our two listeners pointed out is that it's been crickets pretty much since that Puerto Rico statehood, statehood vote. And our listeners said that is coming across as a snub of sorts. They want a clear path forward one way or another. Not to mention acknowledgement that U.S. citizens in an American territory have voted for statehood, and that alone at least deserves a, a, you know, deserves a serious response or an answer. Yeah, I think Rubio and Scott have probably been quiet because they know Mitch McConnell is not going to roll the dice and uh, 
bring Puerto Rico uh, in as a state and risk uh, having two more Democratic senators, even though, as you said, um, you know, Republicans uh, have made inroads. And I think there's some Republican representatives from Puerto Rico, right? Isn't the the member of Congress uh non-voting member of Congress or Republican? Yeah, you can make the argument that Puerto Rico is pretty purple, but of course, uh, you know, how are you going to admit Puerto Rico and not D.C.? And then D.C. Right. would definitely be blue. And, uh, you know, look, the, the balance in the Senate. But again, but what our listeners said is, look, we just want an answer. Tell, tell us sure. what you think. And uh, you know what? We're all about listener engagement on this podcast. So there, we put out the call. <laughs> well, and it's an issue. I mean, uh, Rubio's up for uh, re-election uh, in, in two years, and, and he's going to have to talk about it because, uh, you know, uh, Porter, uh, what happens on the island is certainly plays into Florida politics. So we'll see what happens. John, you had 490. Tell us about that. Yeah, Zach, uh, 490 are the number of lawsuits considered uh, COVID-related that have been filed in Florida so far. You know, this, uh, this renewed effort by Congress to come up with a uh, another economic stimulus plan, extending some level of unemployment benefits and aid to cities and states. Uh, it also has a possible provision that is being uh, demanded by Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and his fellow Republicans. And that's some kind of lawsuit protections for businesses uh, who are fearing claims made over the coronavirus. Well, you know, presumably these lawsuit protections would help in federal court if they're approved. But uh, a a similar effort is underway for the Republican-led legislature in Florida to enact uh, protections very much like these uh, in state court for companies that might get sued by, you know, customers, employees, product users, I guess, uh, who say that they've contracted COVID from interacting with a business. So 490 lawsuits in Florida may sound like a lot, but opponents, which of course include the Florida Justice Association, the Association of uh, Trial Lawyers in Florida, they say it's dangerous to restrict people's access to the courts. And they also say that maybe this isn't such a problem after all. These lawsuits have been filed, but none of them have advanced to uh, trial yet. And uh, everyone acknowledges that under existing law, it's going to be very difficult in most circumstances for someone to prove that they contracted the coronavirus, you know, exclusively by dealing with a business. And if a company followed protocols recommended by the state and federal government, it's going to be hard for a jury to find them guilty of wrongdoing, you would presume. But within that 490 lawsuit number, there's also another number that some people say points to what the real problem is for businesses. And that's that number is 143. That's almost one quarter of the lawsuits that have been filed are actually from businesses suing their insurance companies, saying that the companies have found a way not to pay on business interruption insurance that the companies thought that they had bought. Uh, Hertz Rental Car, uh, based in Southwest Florida, is among the companies that have declared bankruptcy after their claim for business interruption insurance was rejected. And uh, a lot of these insurance policies, believe it or not, have a virus exemption. So the companies are out of luck. And when they but when the policy didn't have a virus exemption, then the insurance companies are saying that the policy doesn't apply because the virus's business interruption wasn't caused by physical damage or loss like you'd have in a uh, hurricane or flood. So while Congress and the legislature may be focused on trying to make it easier for businesses to get out from under the threat of lawsuits from you know sick individual Floridians, what may be the real problem here is a, a more familiar one. 
insurance companies finding a way to get out of what a policyholder thinks they're entitled to. That's something that is very age old in Florida and mo- most of the nation. Well, uh, you know, the Florida legislature loves it some tort reform. I'm sure that will be a big discussion, but they, they're they not often uh, eager to crack down on insurance companies. So we'll see where that goes. Uh, my number is two. That's the number of Florida Republicans who voted for legislation in the U.S. House that would decriminalize marijuana and expunge nonviolent marijuana related convictions. The bill is the first time that a marijuana legalization effort has passed either chamber of Congress. So it's historic in that regard, but it's not expected to advance in the Senate. Still a landmark vote that shows the tide is shifting on marijuana, which is now completely legal in 15 states and is available for medical use and many others, including here in Florida. A total of five Republicans voted for the bill and the two Florida Republicans who supported it are Matt Gates and Brian Mast. Notably, both of them are younger lawmakers. Mast is 40 and Gates is 38. Younger generations are much more open to marijuana legalization. And it seems like uh, that as the next generation comes to power, marijuana could be legalized at the federal level. That wraps up another episode of Inside Florida Politics. I want to thank our audio production guru, Thomas Cordy. And thanks to all of you for listening. Stay safe. We're out of here.